Hello all, this is Conservation Realist with your perennially delayed podcast poster and host, Dr. Tara Sayuri Witte. I am all fired up for this episode, fresh in my mind after editing and transcribing it, and I think it'll get you fired up too. So for this episode 16, I chatted with Dr. Rishi Sugla, a very admired peer who I met back at Scripps Institution of Oceanography several years ago. And he's now the Frontline Community Climate Resilience Scientist at the Climate Impacts Group at the University of Washington, which is truly an exciting position. And he's the perfect person for this job. He, he is, I'd say, maybe a half a generation younger than me, maybe a generation, I don't know, <laughs> which is reflected in our slightly overlapping yet significantly different experiences at Scripps in some ways. When I was a student there, I candidly had a hard time finding many peers there who had an active interest in social justice beyond the sort of removed theoretical notions of vaguely needing to care about human communities and conservation. These students definitely existed, some of them doing great work for underserved communities, but it was rare to see folks there engaging in sustained volunteering with such communities. And it was extremely rare, I don't, was it even existent, um, that social justice was ever integrated into someone's research work apart from showing underrepresented students that there are, in fact, black, indigenous, people of color folks who are scientists. Rishi's experience shows an evolution, somehow, in the consciousness and proactive nature of students at Scripps regarding social justice. And they're not necessarily representative of the whole student body there at the time, but it's definitely a change from when I was there as a student. He and others were able to form this group Center for Interdisciplinary Environmental Justice, or SIEGE, that facilitated the connection of social justice and community organizing principles with other students, and that engaged in active mutual aid. So sharing the resources that they had the privilege of access to, such as scientific training and equipment, with indigenous communities experiencing negative impacts from environmental issues. So When we met, when I was a postdoc, I believe, I think someone had recommended he contact me somehow, um, and I learned about his work. I was immediately energized just learning about his work and sharing ideas that I'd pretty much never had a chance to talk about at Scripps before. Other forums, yes, but not Scripps, an institution that's famed for its long legacy of natural science research. Rishi is a very intriguing, dynamic hybrid of social justice organizer plus academic researcher. Over the years, during our sporadic catch-up chats, we've commiserated about academia feeling so limiting for people who actually want to make a positive difference in a world where catastrophic environmental impacts and blatant environmental injustices make ivory tower mindsets seem Beyond irrelevant, it's unacceptable. Well, he found a position enticing and innovative enough to keep him in academia, and the University of Washington is lucky to have him. And beyond that, another note is that the resident cat here makes a couple of uninvited, very vigorous appearances. And before moving further, I do want to wish all of my listeners in the U.S. a happy Thanksgiving. If you're listening to this a day or two after I post it, um, I love Thanksgiving. Um, With the caveat that I hope that you do spend some energy reflecting on the injustices carried out by U.S. colonizers on Native Americans and thinking on what, beyond land acknowledgments, you and your institutions can do to be true allies in social justice and environmental justice alongside Native Americans today. So the timing of me posting this episode, yes, it's due to me being, as I said, perennially delayed, 
but it's actually quite fitting because in this episode we talk about working with frontline communities, uh, many of which are indigenous communities, on issues of environmental and social justice. And this holiday, though beloved by many Americans, of of course has its ties to, uh, first of all, a a pretty gross misrepresentation of of settler and uh, Native American interactions or relationships history. And is kind of tied to this privilege of of not really being honest about that history. I do realize that different people have different responses to Thanksgiving as a holiday, and some choose not to celebrate. Um, Some choose to continue celebrating it as a time of gathering and feasting together, uh, while also being mindful of the the more honest history of it and the latter is what my family and I are doing in a couple of days tomorrow actually um so again a lot of this episode is about how do we take kind of theoretical notions of of how things should be and actually use the resources afforded to us uh, in whatever positions of privilege we have to make those changes or to make meaningful steps toward those changes. So I'm hoping that this episode inspires all of us to think deeply about how we can better integrate justice into our efforts in the world. Okay, so a clip from The Green Touch by Somo Twin, Xian Tet, and Min Min from Myanmar. And then the chat. ดอบาเซยโดเนโอจาเปียไลปาเนเมงาซาโลโดตูกาเกวนายบาเดปาวะจินลาปาลาโบเยลันลาโลกูบาเลตปาวะเยเตยา <laughs> Alright, well thank you, Rishi. I know you're I imagine you're busy with your job and um I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me because I've always appreciated your perspectives, um, especially being at Scripps, (laughs) these kinds of um, people working and thinking about social justice. It seems kind of few and far between there, at least in a way that interacts with their professional lives. Uh, So also selfishly, I just want to hear more about what you're doing. <laughs> so it's like a catch up for me, but also other people get to to learn from it as well. That sounds great. Yeah, I wish I had a chance to ask you about what you're up to and everything, but I don't have to do your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we should definitely catch up more at some point for sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So uh, I know it's a silly question to ask, but what do you do? <laughs> I'm so curious about your current position. It sounds fantastic, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, thank you for the question. So my job is to help push the field of climate adaptation into a direction where it's working more closely with frontline communities, frontline communities being the communities that experience the most intense and severe and disproportionate impacts of environmental change and climate change in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, the field of climate adaptation in general has long focused on working with people in relative positions of power already. So decision makers, urban planners, engineers, yeah. and the list goes on. It hasn't really focused too much on working with frontline communities. And as a result, the the why and the how and the methods and the way of thinking about how does how does one help 
and support and be in solidarity with frontline communities to build a climate resilient future mm-hmm. is sort of an expanding and burgeoning direction of the field of climate adaptation that I am pushing along at my current job. Yeah. And it's a interesting mix because I'm at a university, but my job isn't to publish, which is sort of the mainstay of academic research. Yeah. In fact, my group publishes very infrequently compared to most academic groups, but rather it's to build relationships in the quote unquote real world outside of the ivory tower and use the resources that academia has to actually create and implement real change on the ground. That's amazing. I feel like if that were more widespread, I might have stayed in academia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had I had left too. I had left. I yeah. was just like, peace out, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I the publish and perish thing, not for me. And then, yeah, this position opened up, and I agree. You know, we need a lot more positions like this in any major institution where they're, you know, trying to deviate away from the status quo and help support communities on the ground doing the work. Yeah. So like on a day-to-day basis, what does that look like? Like how do you, how are you all identifying these communities? Are these communities near your university or do, do you have a wider reach? So right now my group focuses pretty locally. And the idea there is that, you know, change on the ground happens from, it happens from a relational standpoint, right? It happens from close connections built over time, trust built over time. And the best way, most effective way to do that is to work locally and regionally. Now, I think that can be a complicated question and a complicated strategy in a lot of ways, because especially when you're working with communities that may include, for example, migrant communities, Mm. their community resilience is also deeply related to their families and different geographies and how their families are doing. And, Mm. you know, so the, I think working with frontline communities, the scope has to broaden in certain circumstances a little bit, but for now, predominantly we're working locally and regionally um, with communities in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. for the most part and on a day-to-day basis for my job it was was interesting yeah it was sort of like we don't actually know how to do this work in a lot of ways so we Uh don't have a lot of direction to tell you in terms of like what you should be doing on a day-to-day basis but you know help us kind of figure it out and that's been its own interesting adventure to say the least but Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I've noticed is that groups like this, even though they're not publishing, they still use a lot of the same research methodologies because they're all still academics who get these jobs, right? right? So they still use the same research methodologies as an academic would use. But I have, you know, as you know, Tara, like I have experience as a organizer and doing environmental justice and climate justice work outside of the academic context. So stepping into this role, I've kind of been like, you know, we don't need to use these methods because <laughs> some of them are very onerous and time consuming. And the main reason that you use these methods is because you're trying to provide a quote unquote objective framing for the work that you're doing that can then be published in an academic paper. Mm-hmm. When you're not publishing in an academic journal you know that goes out the window it opens up a huge realm of possibilities of of, i think what sorts of work you can do how you can build those relationships how you create change on the ground and you know we're at a moment in time i think where there's so many people who want to start working with communities now that communities are rapidly even more so than they already were getting overtaxed by well-meaning academics right. <laughs> who are just like, we want to work with you, you know, with the Justice for You initiative. It's like people, academics are like, we have to work with you. We have to have community partners now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we're using a bunch of research methods that are super time-consuming Yeah. Um, in the hope that, you know, two or three years from now, we'll produce something of value for community organizations, right? And 
the question that I would like to pose and the, the question that I'm like trying to push along in this work is like, how do we do things in a way that is, that are regenerative, right? How do we create a set of methods, connections, relationships that are not, are not extractive. So we're not asking for hours and hours and hours of yeah. <laughs> community members time um, in the hopes that three years from now, our best intentions have led to a piece of work that, you know, um, is actually impactful on the ground. And I think it's really interesting because I don't know about you, but like there's been, <laughs> there's been so many times where I've started a project and like, this is totally what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And then three years later, you're kind of just like, wow, that was like totally not what we needed. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally not what we needed to do, actually. Like the project pivoted in a completely yeah. different way. And, you know, I think that is like another reason why you, not you specifically, but we as a community need to think about like, how are we adding value along the way? Like, how are we creating points of impact along the way so if and when we get it wrong because like you know the road to hell is paid for best intentions and all of that um <laughs> we've still created something of value if yeah. you know um so that's where my head's been at and um oh my god i wish we to... had like three hours to talk Rishi. <laughs> <laughs> like each point you're bringing i'm like i want to i want to explore that i want to explore that <laughs> that's so cool though and I, I, yes you're i first of all the community organizing piece is something that like i when i was a grad student or a postdoc i went to a community organizing workshop held by a friend who is an amazing community organizer in the aapi space and it was personally interesting to me as someone who is of asian ethnicity but also it was it just blew my mind like how many things they had right about engaging with communities that made sense to me based on my experiences on the ground, but it would never really even be touched on in a conservationist's conventional education or career. Um, so it's really cool that you have that that side of things already. Um, can you give an example of something like from your community organizing background that you've brought or you think needs to be incorporated more into this work? Sure, yeah. So I guess one of the main projects that I'm trying to get off the ground right now is a project that uses oral histories and digital storytelling as a design methodology to create radical climate futurisms alongside Mm. frontline communities. So what I mean in practice by that is a typical way of building consensus or gathering information from community organizations, if you're working with community members or, or community-based organizations would be, Hey, like I'm going to go out and do interviews and have community members fill out surveys. And then I'm going to synthesize that information um, and hopefully create something of value at the end of the process using that information. Right. And looking at that, and just imagining what that process would look like for my own family. Like I, I'm half Puerto Rican, right? So mm-hmm. just imagining academics coming to my grandma who didn't have power for weeks after like Hurricane Maria and being like, cool, we're gonna have you fill out this survey. And then a few years from now, we're gonna publish something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we're gonna hope that publication enters the public zeitgeist in some way that actually like affects change to me just seems unacceptable as a former organizer i'm just like wow like you're doing hopefully good work but you're dealing with folks who aren't having their basic needs met at the moment right it seems paradoxical Mm -hmm. to me that we would say okay just wait a few years you know and and something hopefully will emerge from it so Mm -hmm. i think a first step in working with all these communities is is that that i've experienced in my organizing work and i just want to say that like this is not 100% of the time for every community, right? I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, nothing in doing community-based work is universal. So this is just something that I hope will be useful a high amount of the time, but not every time. And it's important to like keep that ear open and listen for that whenever we're entering a new space. But, you know, I think a fundamental issue with a lot of, folks in the struggle who are on the receiving end of disproportionate impacts is that they're intentionally or unintentionally silenced, 
right? Mm. So the question that I'm working on is how do we work with documentary film collectives to highlight what's going on in communities, what they're experiencing, um, what their visions for the future are, and along the way of like gathering similar sets of information that would normally be taken through a survey or something like that, actually produce like storytelling materials that they can use to amplify their voice, to mm. reach policymakers, to reach decision makers, to reach other folks in their own community in the first place. And that's something of, that's really hard to get if you're a community-based organization because comms or storytelling work is very expensive. Okay. But as a line item in an academic budget is small potatoes, okay. you know, relatively speaking. And then I think the value of doing this through oral histories that are captured on video or on audio is, you know, oral histories are not just a deep dive into a person's past, right? Mm -hmm. Oral history and oral history is really about understanding how people make meaning in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a look at how their aspirations for the future came from the things that they as an individual and as a community have experienced in the past. And I think in addition to the sort of like material value of creating stories that can be shared by community, that can be owned by community, that can be dictated how to use by community, a lot of the communities that we end up working with that we call frontline communities are communities that in some way, shape or form have been severely impacted by colonization. Okay. And colonization is in part the act of erasure of so mm -hmm. many communities. It's a, it's, it's a, the act of removing one's history from oneself and replacing it with a colonial way of being with a colonial paradigm with a colonial way of thinking and mm -hmm. saying that your ways of knowing are invalid they are not allowed they are punishable even um and removing them from the record right so so many communities that have that are are qualified as frontline communities are communities that have been impacted by settler colonialism in some way shape or form or through um um, Chateau slavery that was, you know, in many ways related to the project of settler colonialism. Yeah. So this act of creating oral histories, co-creating oral histories with communities is not just the act of, hey, we have an amazing transcript, an amazing set of storytelling products. It's the act of telling folks reminding ourselves, reminding the communities that we're part of that your histories are valid, that mm -hmm. your histories are important, that your ways of knowing are important, and recreating archives of those histories that were systematically destroyed as part of a colonial project. Um, mm -hmm. So we're, you know, as a specific, even more specific example, zooming in, there's a coalition of 80 uh, organizations across the state of Washington, a frontline organization, it's called Front and Centered, really amazing. They work within a just transition framework. They're trying to build a climate resilience project, mm -hmm. um, a, a climate resilience program amongst this entire coalition. Wow. But again, are just like tapped out by the number of people who are just like, hey, can we have your time? Hey, can we have your time? Hey, can we have your time? <laughs> but when I'm, I'm working really closely with some folks there, and when we talk about like, what if we did this through storytelling and what if we used the like that storytelling to then bring folks together in design sessions where we can all like talk about what emerged in these oral histories and we can like process them together as a collective and like look at what are the meta themes that have come out from oral histories from movement leaders across the state of Washington. What are like group level strategies that are taking place or group level goals? Like what are individual narratives that don't fit the mold easily? And what do we do with all of that? What does that mean for how we understand what is the future collectively that we are trying to build, where are their differences, how do we support. Um, and then here also at the end of this process, here are vignettes, uh, uh, like storytelling vignettes and 
maybe documentary film shorts that we can create and relationships with film collectives and, you know, so on and so forth. So um, that's one way that I'm trying to think about doing this work. Yeah, so that's so cool. Um, and I'll admit that for a while I had a bit of a bias against the buzz term storytelling because for me, like, at a conference, I was like, oh, a storytelling workshop, cool. And like, it was like everyone getting up and telling stories in these like artificial voices. <laughs> you know, like, yes. I'm very like in touch with my feelings. You know, I was just like, no, like, I, I, I feel like maybe you can have gathered from our interactions that I have a very low tolerance for bullshit. <laughs> for me, I have. I love that. I was like, okay, just because you're telling me in like this soft storyteller voice doesn't mean like that I want to hear it. So that was my limited view. But then <laughs> some years later, I actually was asked by my supervisor at IUCN, like, we want qualitative monitoring and evaluation. Can you look into different methods? And I ended up doing most significant change, which is all about storytelling, like collecting people's stories about how a project has changed their lives, their experiences. And it was so powerful. And I've, I was already a fan of qualitative data, but like that, it blew me away how much you could learn and whether those stories are an accurate representation of fact, okay, whatever. But as you mentioned, like people act on what they believe and what they feel. So exactly. It's just, I'm so, I'm such a convert. <laughs> a story is genuinely told in an authentic voice. <laughs> exactly. And it's just, you know, it's just, I think incredibly, and I, I think, you know, it's incredibly powerful to put it on camera, assuming that you're giving that ownership, you know, the fundamental ownership of the actual video to the communities that you're working with. Working with talented documentary filmmakers or story, like storytellers of other kinds, whether it's like an oral historian or, you know, so on and so forth, I think is so important for the reasons that you described, because there is this very artificial way of like, gathering and collecting stories that's very can be like kind of navel gazy just like let's yeah. all feel good about the process so we're doing storytelling work or people mean storytelling say storytelling but what they really mean is like comms right or like you know we want to or like marketing right that's not what we're talking about we're not trying to like do a nice marketing project to make us feel really great about the work that we're doing but yeah, that the the art of storytelling is really about you know diving deep into what someone believes, and yeah, that's as you said, that's what people act on. People don't act on facts most of the time, and a lot of the time, right? Sometimes yeah. we do, totally. but there's a lot of time we act on yeah what we feel, what we think in that moment, the emotions that we're experiencing, the traumas that we've experienced as a community, as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, and good storytelling is, is an art form that brings that to the surface and brings that to the light. So how do we systematically do that in a way that builds capacity, is regenerative, is useful for like shifting power relations on the ground and also getting the information that us nerdy academics need to create pieces of work that we feel could be impactful on the ground? Yeah. And, you know, I think Cornell West once said, justice is what love looks like in public. Yeah. And <laughs> I think the second part for me is um, love at its best is like a collaborative art, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're working towards justice, like how do we make that into a collaborative art? Is that the mm -hmm. like heart and the ethos of what I think I'm trying to create? That's amazing. And I think that going back to, you know, what you're saying about well-meaning projects coming in saying, let's let us help you. Let us help you. Uh, first of all, I've I've been like deep in that, like just managing a project where we are working on livelihoods and governance and conservation and fisheries management and education. And like these villages are like, ah. You know, they're like, this is amazing. We have no time. <laughs> like, so that's a real concern for a lot of projects. So you have all these interventions. They're important. They could even be useful. But the reality is, like, how can people who have to work uh, very hard for their basic needs, for their livelihoods, how are they going to have time to come to workshops? And then how are they going to have time to spread those learnings to the rest of their community, right? 
And this particular project I'm talking about was conceived of with the best intentions, and there are lots of excellent parts to it, but lots of parts that had to pivot. And it really got me thinking, uh, how inclusive and collaborative can a project be if you're coming in with it already developed? And then you're like, hey, we designed a project for you. It's going to be community based, except for the whole structure of the project. <laughs> this like super hits home for me, because I think the field of climate adaptation broadly also climate services, which is like providing people, governments, organizations with climate data to inform their decision making. They have started collaborating with communities, but they're still operating under the central pretense that information, that climate data and information is what's needed and useful. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, that might be true like one out of 10 times or something yeah. like that. But if you go to someone and you're just like, hey, we have funding, we can pay you stipends for, you know, helping us figure out what types of climate information you need. And we think you need this information for X, Y, and Z reasons. A lot of the times people will be like, you know, like, cool, I need support, I guess. Let's, let's do it. Let's try it. Right. But the theory of change there is a little bit wonky because is you know i think it's really important to consider under like what context is western scientific data actually impactful and important mm -hmm. on the ground is that like what 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 is this you know and, and in some cases it 100 percent is right and in other cases maybe someone needs again, like storytelling support, maybe someone needs capacity building, maybe someone needs connections to people in positions of power, right? Maybe mm -hmm. folks need to be heard. Maybe they need, like, there's so many other things that mm -hmm. if you're in a, a frontline community on the receiving end of disproportionate impacts that one might need, that isn't data, that, that isn't data. And there's so much right now in this moment in time especially with climate impacts telling especially in the world of climate adaptation doing these big research projects that tell communities broadly what they already know like mm -hmm. well like it turns out like wildfire <laughs> is going to be a problem in your community and it's going to get way worse right and it's like wow like that was a seven hundred thousand dollar five-year <laughs> grant i'm making this up this yeah, you know, yeah. i don't want to call anyone out in particular but <laughs> no and it's just like that maybe wasn't what's needed but if you go to a, a community that's struggling like we have a seven hundred thousand dollar grant you can get this small slice of it to participate in our project and we're gonna like quote unquote help you a lot of folks will be like well yeah like maybe that will help you know and mm -hmm. say yes whereas if you're going into the situation like and I think this is also the importance of how you describe storytelling and how I'm thinking about it is like, how do we go in eyes wide open and just deeply listen to what's going on on the ground and, you know, act in a, like a solidarity based way where, you know, you and I and other folks in our positions are in relative positions of power. Like how do we act as a conduit for whatever it's, whatever emerges that's needed. Um, whether that's through like connecting with other researchers, connecting to yeah, decision makers, like how do we do that? Mm -hmm. And I think that is the, the question in my field, at least for the next like <laughs> decade, as all this money starts coming through, how do we not just use it to support our, the research projects that we already want to do, mm -hmm. but with some community input? <laughs> uh, I mean, I was on a, a review team looking at like people and coastlines projects for uh, at grant proposals and it was offensive to me how many projects were like yeah we're totally going to include people just trust us on that and they had no element of their project that integrated like a plan for how they were going to <laughs> to do that like there was just one i think of the whole pool of, of proposals where they actually had like we already have agreements with these tribes and we they mapped out the process by which they would add that structure to the project. You know, we'll have consultations. Uh, but, you know, it's just an example of 
a requirement that's added for a good reason, but it turns into a checkbox that is then removed from the meaning of it. Um, so just hearing about the work you're doing and the fact that it's at a pretty big university <laughs> is amazing to me. I mean, it's, it makes me very hopeful that this will become more and more common. I hope. <laughs> I hope so too. And I think, I think it is changing. And I think there are ways to be creative about how we create a new, like new research processes that are, you know, <laughs> approved, I guess, by the academic powers that be, but are actually in alignment with building community power, right? And being open to the possibility that maybe our technical expertise isn't actually the most important thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> on the ground that is needed. And and being like, that's okay, because in the one in 10 times where it is the important thing, where it is, where you can really be like, ah, this is why more information is needed, because we really don't know what's going to happen. And starting to collect, you know, time series data will actually help us understand this, like, critical part of an ecosystem that our community deeply relies on, like, or, you know, the powers that be or like institutions of governments require literally require this data for us to get the resources we need something like that you know really being like open and available for when that is the case and when that's not the case like what is it that we need to build at the university for when that isn't the case can we leverage the university comms department to go and help write op-eds for community partners can we yeah. connect with the government offices at the university that have connections deep connections to like state officials mm. and we you know at scripts scripts was sending people to you know the un cop conferences every year that is completely unattainable to 99.9 percent .9 of communities in struggle right mm -hmm. yeah. I, I made up that i made up that number <laughs> but like could we work with community partners and bring some of them to spaces where interventions need, yeah. need to be made? There's like so many things that the university, if reoriented, could provide. And if academics could, you know, have a little less like, you know, self-importance about <laughs> their work in the process. Um, could, yeah. Yeah. Could be, yeah. 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 Um, so I have a little vignette related to that. So I used to date a, a hotshot firefighter, you know, like wildfire yeah. firefighter. Uh, and it was so refreshing because he wasn't an academic, <laughs> but he also was interested in filmmaking and photography. So there was a CNBC, uh, what was it? You know, they used to have those evening gatherings. Like salty cinemas? No, no, it was more informal than that. It was like a okay. just meeting of CNBCers. Uh, and I think it was Cliff Capono was presenting a video he'd made. And there's all this discussion afterwards, like hand wringing, like, but what is the role of science and advocacy and blah, blah. And this kind of stuff, like, it's good for like students to talk about. But for me, having this is maybe my eighth year at Scripps, I was like, okay. Like this conversation needs to progress. Like not everyone has to play the same role. I feel like if you're doing environmental work, there is kind of a moral obligation. I mean, that's my personal. Anyway, this discussion was going on and on. And then as we walked out, this guy turns to me. He's like, "You scientists think you're real special, don't you?" <laughs> like, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> and so I, true. Yeah, and so. Um, I think that having that reality check, like we need to be interacting more with people who aren't so in this bubble and, and telling us like, you guys are being ridiculous right now. Like this is a real world problem. <laughs> and if you're, especially if you're claiming my work is, you know, if, if, you, if you're one of those people whose friends are really like, oh, so-and-so does marine conservation, they're saving the world. If, if you are planting yourself in that realm, you have, you have to actually like, have an eye toward how your work is actually being used. Someone could debate me on that. But um, on that note, so when you and I first met, I think you were, one of the things we talked about was your work with Siege at Scripps. 
And that was the first time I'd ever heard of mutual aid as applied to your research setting. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that work and how it came about and, and what, what it was like bringing university resources to real world problems in marginalized communities. Yeah, so shout out to uh, the Center for Inter Interdisciplinary mm -hmm. Environmental Justice, also known as SIEGE. Um, they, I was a co-founder of SIEGE and I've sort of stepped away, but they're still mm -hmm. out there doing amazing work, so go check them out. Um, and yeah, but the, the idea of SIEGE was conceived of after some problematic incidents at Scripps, where there was um, profiling of people on campus that had happened, there was big email threads about it, and just realizing that there was a need for intervention and education mm. on what, you know, this is way back when, when, where, you know, nobody at a natural, uh, natural sciences oriented institution would know what a microaggression is, right? So <laughs> even just like, you know, it, it was a an idea founded from a real world incident where we were just like, wow, like there is an amazing set of like scholarship around racism and um, structural problems and inequity of all kinds and indigeneity and decolonization and you know the list goes on mm -hmm. that is alive and well and thriving here at the university and how do we insert that into a place like Scripps Institution of Oceanography where the closest you get to people caring about humans is, I guess, conservation work, which, mm -hmm. as you know, I'm sure you talk about a lot in this podcast, has not always been the, like, paragon of no. <laughs> not harming <laughs> people on the ground. Um, but... So it started off with a, a, a class on the critical analysis of science and environmental justice where we're mm. taking a critical lens on what environmental justice is, what science is, like how does it emerge, the structural problems, but gearing the course towards folks who are in, I think broadly speaking, uh, STEM programs mm -hmm. who have not been exposed to that sort of thinking at all. and. Uh, the class was, especially in its first year, was a really great success. It was awesome. And from there, we started realizing, like, this sort of analysis on, like, colonization, on structural racism, on anti-Blackness, um, on historical and ongoing legacies of environmental justice and disproportionate impacts should all inform how we do our work. And at the time, especially, it was not in any way, shape, or form. Um, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And we just organized a collective, which became Siege, that really took this solidarity-based approach to working with communities. And by solidarity-based approach, what I really mean is understanding implicitly that I think, you know, we are not all free from these systems that harm us mm -hmm. unless we are like, I am not free from these systems that har harm us unless we are all free from these systems mm -hmm. that harm us. Because if these systems that harm us or exist and harming other people, they can and will be turned and oriented towards other folks at some point, other people, even if it's not you today, maybe tomorrow it is. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so with that lens, I think comes a very different mindset than what the traditional academic is used to. And I think we've talked a little bit about it, which is like, oh, my technical expertise aren't useful. Oh, you know. sorry, my cat started <laughs> attacking my hands. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hello, no worries at all. <laughs> so uh, someone wants a little attention. Right. <laughs> Why are you doing a podcast? <laughs> um, the, yeah, I think the, um, the difference there is like really around what we already talked about, which is like an academic who enters a situation where their technical expertise isn't useful will often be like, uh, like, you know, I don't, sorry, I can't do this work. Not yeah. my problem. You know, I don't have expertise. Good luck. Right. And the solidarity based approach, I think at its core is really about like, this is not your struggle. This is our struggle. Right. Because you, 
I think very deeply believe, and I don't think, I think it's, it's hard to teach this, but you very deeply believe that this is our collective issue, right? Like maybe it emerges in your home, in your community, in your place, mm -hmm. very differently than it has in my place. Maybe I haven't experienced it exactly what you're going through directly, but unless we all find a way through issues like this, then none of us do because it'll come back to bite, bite us. And I don't know if I can curse a little bit, yeah. but like bite us in the ass in some way, yeah. shape or form one day. Right. So with that comes an approach of like, what just asking really openly, what is it that we need to do? What is it that we need to do like together collectively as co-conspirators to make change happen on the ground and like any good co-conspirator, like how do we take these billion dollar institutions that we're part of and redirect small fractions of resources towards communities where they can make so much difference on the ground. Um, and that emerged in a few different ways, but I think it emerged in like joint struggle projects with folks in Chile and Argentina. We've talked about this before offline, but, um, joint struggle projects with folks in Chile and Argentina who are like the receiving end of lithium mining impacts and right. lithium mining that's being used for renewable energy projects and well-meaning, you know, academics <laughs> in the sort of like green tech renewable energy space will gloss over reproducing harm, you right. know, on communities that are very similar to the communities that they've harmed in the past, right? And, you know, thinking about what is it that's needed? Is it art? Is it, um, is it movement building? Is it, how do we movement build from our standpoint as people in the global North, right? Who have access to resources, connections, potentially to all kinds of big nonprofit organizations. How do we create an ecosystem of people that can support work that's happening on the ground? And I think that's like broadly the lens that we we took uh, a, a sort of social movement solidarity based lens to being people who have academic expertise who can use those academic expertise but are not going into a situation being like you know we'll help you produce the data that you definitely totally absolutely need to you know stop this pretty like effed up issue that's happening on the ground um, and it's hard work to do that it's really hard work, I think, to do that at institutions that don't have that epistemological framing of what it means to do this work. Mm -hmm. um, you get yeah. a lot of pushback, a lot of barriers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I first was applying to Scripps, I was shocked they even had a Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation. And other people, like at other universities I was applying to, they were also kind of, they're like, oh, you're applying to Scripps with your interest in applied work? So even at that time, CMBC, which is an amazing, it was an amazing project for teaching students. I, I think their work in applied, uh, making a difference in an applied way was not quite as realized, but that was seen as revolutionary, you know? Um, so I, I'm really curious, I, I, we don't have time to get into it necessarily, but uh, that's why I was so surprised to hear about your position. It's like a university position. I'm like, how did that, like, I'm so curious to know, like, what went on behind the scenes to kind of create an, an openness to this kind of work. Um, so my question to you is, I've already made my opinion very clear on this, but there is always going to be, I think, a group of people who are like, we should have science for science's sake, right? And, and I appreciate the reasons they give, but what are your thoughts on kind of the ethical obligations of these academic institutions um, with regard to how their work serves others and um, and the kind of what is owed and and what would you say to people who are like we have to keep science pristine to uh, to have it be respectable i think um i think this is really an interesting question because a lot of scientists don't do deep dives into why science looks like the way it does at, mm -hmm. in the u.s at least and if you like go harken back to like the days of like 
the uh, of, of science in the United States before the National Science Foundation was founded, you'll see that the NSF was basically founded because there was a bunch of folks that were wondering about like what are the implications of you know, like your scientific research, and there was a bunch of old white scientists who were just like, well, I want to be left alone because you know you're bothering me and I don't want to be bothered. So they created this artificial paradigm, this thing called basic research. It didn't exist. It didn't like emerge okay. from. I have yeah, to look into this. Yeah. It didn't like, yeah, emerge from like, you know, the, the power, like, I don't know, some power that be into the universe. It was made up by a bunch of like older white men who wanted the power and privilege to just like do whatever they wanted basically. Right. And they created this idea of like, you know, this is basic science. And, you know, if you try to look at what I'm doing or tell me that it's not important, then, you know, you are, you are <laughs> selling it in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's just completely made up. It was just completely made up by a bunch yeah. of like older white men. And they were just like, and we're going to create this thing called the National Science Foundation. And we're going to make it so it's really hard for anyone to like, ask questions about how we're directing this research funding Mm. and, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, that has like pluses and minuses, but I think the the point here is just that the idea of like basic research is just a made up concept. And Mm. the idea of like science informing policy for that matter is a made up concept. If you look back into like the history of, the IPCC, for example, before the IPCC was created, there was a bunch of activist climate scientists, basically, who were just pointing out that, like, this terrible thing is going to happen, right? There's this drastic global change that will manifest locally in all kinds of different ways that's occurring. And the government said, Do you know what? Um, this is actually really inconvenient. What we could use is uh, more research. Um, yeah, why don't you just go do like research it a little bit more and then come back to us later, you know, when you have things a little more figured out, right? And it was, you know, so there's this legacy of the NCA and the IPCC and big intergovernmental reports like this, which again, do have a certain amount of value. I'm not like trying to toss away the whole thing, but at their origin, was just a made up concept to basically like protect the protect powerful people in institutions mm-hmm. of government who are just like mm, we don't want to deal with this climate change things right now we're gonna what we'll do instead is give you money to research it mm-hmm. more and produce these reports which are still ongoing yeah even though every year like the amount that these reports change is gradually becoming like less and less and less and less and the like global level like amount of resources towards climate adaptation has not necessarily followed suit with like the information in these reports in the first place yeah right so you have this weird paradigm of science of like that's advocacy that's applied research and this is basic research and that was all kind of made up in the first Mm -hmm. place right i don't think i think you can do quote-unquote basic research in an applied way and like an example of this i think is when you like like i think it's actually a little bit patronizing to say that if you're doing work with communities you can't do basic research right because i've been in situations where like you're working with community members in some geography that are asking incredibly deep scientific questions yeah that framed in a slightly different way would be amazing quote unquote basic research question right so i reject the premise you know and the idea that because this involves people or involves community means that it is not going to create incredible like scientific information that we now consider basic research is just like a false premise and there are cases where maybe you have a lone person in a lab somewhere studying something that nobody else on the planet really cares about. Um, And as you said, I think we can, I can appreciate the value of just like interested, passionate people pursuing something that they care about, but I don't think we need this like basic research, applied research. I I think we can question that framing a little Mm -hmm. bit more. We can like dig into it and wonder 
and, and really think deeply about all the places that he's trying to unplug my my camera, so I have to hold the USB for me. Now he's clawing at my hand. He's like, I'm so sorry. You're making such a good point. <laughs> it's really no problem. It uh, adds levity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear you elucidate these points, and I, I think that at this point in, in time, just knowing what we know about the state that the planet's in. Um, to be an institution that receives like so much funding and prestige and to not use that power in a meaningful way is um, irresponsible almost. Oh my gosh, kid, stop it. <laughs> such a monster. Um, I just do I mean, not want you to do a podcast, no. really, truly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that it's definitely something people hide behind, right? And also for those who are in academia, even if they're doing applied work, like doing surveys on so and such, such and such, like conservation issue, it almost becomes like their panic response. Like the situation's worse. Um, what do I know how to do? I know how to do surveys. I'm gonna do surveys. And you're just like, we don't really need more information in that way. And so many papers or you know, like conference plenaries will be like, we know that this is a human issue, and we know that leadership's important and communication's important. But then there's this huge time lag on okay how do we we know those things are important why are we not shifting more of our attention there and i think there's a lot of kind of shifting that responsibility like over oh, scientists so that doesn't <clears throat> fall under our purview but then no one's making sure that 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 kind of gap is being filled by anyone so you're just kind of leaving information out into the ether and be like someone else will pick it up right and so i think that's a kind of laziness at, a, at the same time everyone's busy but I, th I think that it's a kind of complacency that's I think unacceptable in the, in the current and climate. Absolutely and you asked about mutual aid before and I realized I didn't really like talk oh. about what mutual <laughs> aid is but mutual aid is just an ethos of working in close conjunction and solidarity and collaboration with other folks who are going through something who are struggling in some way and providing support through a network of people who also have agreed to provide support and it's not it's different than the ethos of charity which i think often mm -hmm. comes laden with the idea that you know you are I don't know, you are like moralizing a little bit. You are doing good for the world. You are in a position of relative power. You're not going to give up that power, but you can give a little bit of money, which can be really important, right? But it's different than mutual aid, which is just actualizing a horizontal network of people who are not acting in positions of superiority, but in, in a position of solidarity with one another to give support when support is needed and do that in a network. Right. And I think that is like something that could fill the gap in like academic spaces where like what would a mutual aid network of academic researchers look like where or like other people at the university as well, not just like researchers mm -hmm. where someone comes to someone like a community comes to someone in California for research expertise that doesn't necessarily exist in the University of California system. Like, why, why don't we develop a network of people where you can be like, do you know who can, like my colleague in Michigan, right. and help engage with that work? And how do we build resources around that to support that work if that if needed, right? So there's mm -hmm. like maybe a grants, like a, a grants program or a rapid funding option for things that are happening on the ground, right? There's so many different possibilities to re-envision how we, collaborate in this work so we're not isolated as researchers feeling overwhelmed when someone comes to us also because yeah that is real right like we're taught as academics like this is your lane stay in your lane that is antithetical to what it takes to do this work where you have to be like there are no like lanes there is a really big field that we are all dancing in and you know like maybe i'm not the right social dancing partner for you but like you can go like go dance with this person over here instead and you know like trading off that way to support people in the way that is needed and meets the moment of what is happening i think is 
you know, at, at its best, what an engaged university system could look like. Um, we have a long way to go, though. Yeah, yeah. I love that, though. It, a dance party. <laughs> <laughs> dance party to make the world better. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much, Rishi. This was amazing. This was very um, invigorating for me. Uh, yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for the time. And I definitely would love to keep catching up at some point, uh, just because I, I, I'm i so interested in the work you, you all are doing up there in your, what, what do you call it, department, program, lab? Group, yeah. Group. And department. My department is oriented around this, too. Yeah, yeah um, I, I would just, I'm just really eager to learn more. But I'll let you go for now. Um, but thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. So nice talking. Let's catch up soon. Absolutely. All right. Bye. Woo. That was a chat. I hope you found it invigorating too. Wow. And perhaps, perhaps you found it interesting enough to motivate a like, subscribe, share, comment, review, depending on how you're listening to this, perhaps. Uh, there is also a donate button on the Substack page if you'd like to show some appreciation of this work monetarily. And uh, yeah, I'm always happy to know that you're out there listening. Many thanks again to Dr. Rishi Sugla, and thank you for listening. I am grateful for you being here. Next episode coming up in some to be determined amount of time. Take care. Jala ตุ๊บจ้องเนี่ยผิวเส้นลงเลยเส้นแลนนี่ลับปาจีเยกงโกซองเนี่ยตุ๊ลาดวยนายชินลุเมียเปยาเรมาตุ๊ทะเลกง
ตาบ่เจลับบาราบ่เยละละลูกบาเลตาบ่วายเมญูเซตอบบาโบเลตาบ่วายเตยาเรเมตินายมาเซเมนะลอนาไดมินด์ตวยจีเลตูเทยเต